This is the Low Tox Life Podcast. If all the birds could fly right now, as high as me somehow, they could see all the things I've been dreaming of. These wings of mine flutter inside, they shimmy and they glide, breaking forth, crack the shell from this clockwork light. Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex Stewart, your host. Today is the very first show of 2020 and it is show 171. We have a wonderful show for you today, but before I talk to you about that one, I want to welcome everybody to this new year and new decade. I want to welcome people who've been with us Since the beginning of the show, people who've joined more recently, and maybe, just maybe, we've got a few listeners who are tuning in from the first time today. The good news for you guys is you have 170 other shows to back catalogue and binge listen to. So that's a lot of beautiful walks in the forest or by the beach uh, to catch up on all things low tox. It has been an absolute pleasure bringing you this show for the past three and a half years. Very much looking forward to our fourth anniversary. And what we've decided to do this year is to group all of the different aspects that we cover in the show into little mini series of four to five shows at a time. And this will allow us, well, it allows my brain to feel more organized as we plan for and research the shows uh, and the wonderful guests that we bring you. But it also allows you to dive into the topics a bit more deeply from different aspects and angles Uh, instead of darting around all the time, all throughout the year. And the very first mini-series is on uh, inspiring people changing the world from their corner, because that looks really different uh, depending on what kind of work they're doing, what kind of background they might have, what inspiration they draw from, and what problems they're tackling. And I think a fresh decade it brings us a fresh opportunity to not only hear from how people are impacting the world in magnificent ways themselves to make it safer, to help our planet thrive, but also how that looks for us uh, and what the next steps might look like. And so I'll be sharing some tips along the way in this mini-series as to what you can do uh, to action something further in the different aspects that we're covering. Then we're moving on to a mind mini-series, a health mini-series. We've got a parent topic mini-series, the home and uh, specific to environmental toxins, and more and more and more and more. So I will unveil an actual program for the year very, very soon in one of our newsletters, but I wanted to give you guys listening today a bit of a preview as to what was happening. I know it's going to be really exciting. So today's show, we've got a good one. It is uh, something that I wasn't really aware of, uh, well, I mean, let's put it this way. I wasn't aware of this kind of work being done until my wonderful assistant, Elise, went on a retreat uh, as a part of a coaching program she was doing in the States, uh, in the wild uh, forests of Virginia. 
Uh, and it was kind of a rewilding uh, vision quest retreat. It wasn't a, um, a relax, have a cocktail and get a massage kind of vibe. It was doing really intensive work to drill deep down inside of you, as well as reconnecting to the earth, to your dreams, to your imagination. And she came back raving about it and talked about this uh, organization called Animas and reached out to one of the Animas instructors, Rebecca Wildbear. And Rebecca Wildbear is our first guest of the year. And I thought this would be a really great uh, conversation to bring you as the very first one of the year because it's that piece around reconnecting to ourselves and reconnecting to nature. And something amazing happens when we actually take the time to do that. I've seen people quit jobs from unethical companies. Uh, I've seen people find strength within themselves that they didn't know they had. I've seen all sorts of fantastic things happen when we actually do the work to connect to ourselves and to our earth more. And I really think it is the source of great healing, not just on a personal level, but on a communal level for our entire planet and all living things on it. So Rebecca Wildbear is a river and soul guide. She compassionately helps people tune into the mystery that lives within the wild earth community, dream time, and our own wild nature. She gently ushers people into the underground river of their greater story so that they may embrace their sacred gifts, live a life of creative service, and rediscover a deep belonging to the earth community. Uh, How does that sound? So Rebecca utilizes her training and experience in yoga, meditation, hakomi, somatic psychotherapy, and supports individuals to discover and manifest their soul gifts. Sound like a good topic for show one 2020? I think so. And I absolutely adored this interview. Now, as always, we have a low-tox swap offer to support you in making the swaps that are going to help you live a beautiful, healthy, low-tox life. And we have brought back, actually, the last sponsor of last year, which is Killer Pillar. Uh, and so many people have been raving about this pillow that we reached out to them and said, look, we've got no one to start the year with. Would you guys be keen? Uh, given we only did half a month last year and they were like, heck yes, especially because they don't just have their big original pillow now. They have a specific pillow for children 8 to 12 years old. So to just give you a little bit of a rundown for this gorgeous natural and organic pillow, uh, it was developed by a Queensland chiropractor and uh, his wife. And I actually met these guys and uh, they are absolutely lovely and so committed to combining the latest technology with the purest and most natural materials. So the result is what they call a perfect pillow, and I know a lot of you guys are calling it too. I love mine. Uh, And it is spinally correct. It's comfortable, non-toxic, healthy, all kind to the environment, which is so important. And as I mentioned, they're launching an 8 to 12-year-old size. So it's a slightly smaller version of the adult size, but it still has the zippered neck pouch that allows you to customise how big the support groove is behind the head, uh, depending on whether you're a side sleeper or more of a back sleeper. 
uh, and you get that zippered pillow cover as well that you can just zip off, wash separately and, uh, and reuse. So your offer this month isn't just for that new tween pillow, it's actually for their entire range and it includes 15% off all purchases and free shipping Australia-wide. Uh, and if the international folks are interested in this, please write them an email because the more you bug them to make this available worldwide, the, the luckier you might get. I think it's an incredible innovation and I hope you enjoy making the most of that offer. Your offer code is LOWTOXLIFE15 and Killapillar is spelled K-I-L-L-A-P-I-L-L-A if you want to Google it quickly. And you can always check it out in the show notes. So you'll find that on lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. So that's the offer. And I've told you about the first show of the year. I want to remind anyone who's always waiting for the next round of Go Low Tox that it is open for registration. So you can head to lowtoxlife.com, hit the courses tab, and then obviously hit Go Low Tox. It's a program that I personally coach for five weeks two or three times a year uh, and you, if you've ever been worried that you're not using the right things, that you're getting greenwashed, you're still confused about a few of the home topics, uh, please, it, I just think it is a course that everybody says is life-changing no matter where they are at in their low-tox journey. So go ahead and register. I would love to see you there. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to kick off this amazing conversation with Rebecca. I hope you enjoy. Hello, Rebecca. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I am fantastic and I'm very excited about our conversation. It is something that was born out of my wonderful uh, program manager, Elisa's trip into the US recently where she experienced uh, some dream uh, body and, uh, and sort of listening to nature work. And she'd had a very deep experience with nature and she started researching. She's like, I want to do more of this. And she came across Animas and the work you were doing. And she's like, I think there's someone you need to speak to on the show. So this was not my research. And I love it when someone leads me down a path that I may not have necessarily gone down myself, um, especially when someone knows my curiosity levels really well. And it was like, ooh, this is very interesting because for me in a time where we are so disconnected from the natural world, most people don't even know where their food comes from, let alone what it's like to be on a farm or in a nature reserve or kayak down a river. Um, and, uh, and, and to me, it's like people doing the work you're doing are literally putting your hands up to be our guides, to reconnect us, um, not only to nature, but to ourselves. And, uh, and so it's a, it's a thrill to have you here. And I thought a little icebreaker question, Rebecca Wild Bear is your name. Were you born with that name or is this just, uh, is this something that you chose once, um, once you're an adult? No, I chose that as an yeah, adult. I thought so. I was like, that would be crazy. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, I haven't actually met anyone else with that same name. And mm. some, sometimes people ask me if I'm a native American, but, but I'm not. And, um, I've never actually even met a native American with that name. Somebody told me once that, that, um, the word wild isn't even often used in, with indigenous people because it's inherently, everything is wild. There's no need for a word for it. So it's not a name that I, I know of anybody else having, mm. um, but it's a name I chose for myself and changed legally. And I, I did well that well before. Bears actually is a very significant guide in my life. 
but um, I did it when I was younger and I didn't, didn't really know consciously at that time, the significance that, um, that bear would be as a guide for me. Wow. As, as, it, as it's come to be later through my imagination and dreams and encounters on the land. Mm, incredible. And uh, so you did a counseling master's at John Hopkins University. What drew you to counseling? And from that, I guess, you know, if you just want to talk for a while, when did the desire to integrate that study with reconnecting people to themselves and nature come from doing that study? You know, I, I've always had a love of, of nature and, um, and helping people at the same time. In fact, I was quite conflicted in school about whether to go down the field of what I th- thought of as environmental education and, uh, or counseling, and I, I, I wasn't sure which one to do. And I uh, worked at a summer camp, which was probably the loveliest job I've ever had, and it was probably the most remote, wild place I'd ever lived in. It was called Camp Greentop in the Contocton Mountains of Maryland. Oh, Here we're wow. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, we lived in log cabins, very primitive. And um, I, actually, it was for with people with disabilities. So we took people with disabilities on kind of like to expose them to nature. We took care of them. And it was so intimate to care for people that in many ways were discarded by society and to just and to care for them so intimately. And then also to be, to just live in this really like, to, I, I went to sleep at night hearing the sound of the trees blowing in the wind, which kind of sounded like the ocean. And at that time in my life, I had never experienced anything like that. And yet I got to be there for the whole summer. So, I mean, after the, those times, I knew that I really wanted to live in nature and I knew that I really wanted to help people. And I didn't quite know how I was going to go about doing both of those things. And so I, I also had cancer when I was 21, my senior year of college. And I nearly died. The odds were not in my favor of survival. <clears throat> and um, I had a lot of people helping me and I went through a pretty big transformation in relationship with the possibility of death. And so at, at that time I decided maybe I should go into counseling because it seemed like, uh, like I could help people with that sort of stuff in the same way that I had been helped in that time. So I started with counseling, but it didn't take me long. I worked in the public school for about three years and um, and I worked as an outward bound instructor in the summers. <clears throat> so I was still in the wild in the summers, but I realized I really couldn't spend nine months of the year in the cinder block walls. And, um, and you know, therapy wasn't, you know, counseling and personal growth and nature were not recognized as very valuable things in the public school system. And so I wanted to be in a place where they were. So I quickly transitioned to the field of wilderness therapy, where I could again be outside all the time and working with people in that way. Mm. And, um, and then, and then even that wasn't enough. I was going to ask like, you know, when you were a little girl, was there a fascination with nature when you were really, really tiny or was it something that was born out of your cancer journey? Oh no, it was always, it was, I was always wanting to be outside as a kid. I, you, right. could, you could almost always find me. I lived in a suburban neighborhood, but you could almost always find me in a tree. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of trees, pine trees, a big ash tree, a maple tree, a cherry tree in my yard. And I was always in them. Yeah. Um, I, I actually s- probably sought comfort more from trees than from humans. And, um, <laughs> um, you know, and then there was uh, visiting my grandparents and family vacations that were in wilder places like the ocean and the lake and the forest. And I went on hikes. My family was not that big into nature, but I had um, uh, extended relatives that were. And so they brought me into the ocean and, and hiking and things. And I was always happier to be outside than anywhere else. Yeah. And it's funny, I think a lot of us are, but we just don't know it. 
<laughs> um, so obviously, uh, this disconnection is, uh, it's, it's epidemic really. Um, I, I'd love to ask you just to in, sort of get people to be more curious who feel disconnected currently in their lives from nature, who know they want more of it, but just haven't pieced together how they're going to get there. What do you listen, when you listen to nature, what do you hear? What, what does nature tell you that makes you feel more true, I guess? Well, um, I would say before I even knew that, before I even heard things in detail from nature, I always wanted to be in nature. And I feel that in a sense that's because nature knows distinctly who it is all the time. It has no confusion. A tree mm. knows it's a tree, a bird knows it's a bird an insect, a leaf, a rock, the water, it, they all, they all like are just themselves. There's no confusion. And humans, we're, we're very confused. We have all these voices <laughs> so confused. Head, and we don't know which voice should I listen to and what does this feeling mean? And I'm divided. Should I do this or should I do that? And everybody else in society wants me to do this, but that doesn't feel right. And I really want to do this. And so who am I and how do I respond? And so just going out into nature, a lot of that confusion and those voices drop. And I always found, even before I started to have a deeper relationship, that just being out in nature settled my mind and brought me more into the truth of who I really am when I was surrounded by all these other beings that were truly themselves. And that was, you know, back when I'd say I didn't even necessarily call the world an animate world, you know, of beings, of sentient beings, which now I do. Um, when I was a kid, I knew that the world was sentient before anybody told me that it wasn't because I regularly talked to the trees and the rocks and somewhere along the line in my, quote, education, um, you know, I was told that that was imagination and that wasn't real. And so um, it was really when I got back to the work with Animus Valley Institute, which started when I was 29, I'd already been spending all my time in nature. But uh, the practices that they introduced me to taught me that to, again, talk to nature and that nature will listen and nature will speak back. And so, of course, there's many voices that are skeptical and um, and it doesn't speak back the same way or the same language. So just like anything, learning something new, it takes time to be able to listen. But I remember distinctly some of my very first conversations in the natural world after learning some of those practices. One was with a squirrel, another was with a fox. And they would, and I was, you know, and I was then and continue to be so surprised by the way that nature responds um, that you don't expect. And um, so there's, and so there's lots of things I hear now and lots of ways I hear, but you know, it's not even necessarily always what I hear. It's the way I feel when I'm in nature. Like um, it took a while to come back to feeling connected because it took a lot of time of almost feeling the disconnect going into nature and wanting to feel connected, longing to feel connected. The longing was really important and yet somehow not feeling connected. But then in time, but having moments where connection happened and having moments where conversation happened, having these moments and then wanting it to, to be there all the time and to moving into a place where it feels like I'm connected to nature all the time to me, even when I'm not in nature, it feels mm -hmm. like um, my greatest belonging is to nature. And I, I'm connected to all the beings I've been in deep relationship with in my, in my imaginal sense, even when I'm not always with them. Mm. But of Amazing. course, I, yeah. I always love being with them the most. It's nothing better than being out, outdoors. Mm. Um, you mentioned Animas, the institute there. Can you tell us what they are, what they do, 
sort of founding principles, if you like, and why uh, that felt like a fit for you on your journey and in the work you do? Um, well, let's see. The One of the major principles with Animus is uh, soul, the journey to soul, which is your mythos, your personal destiny, the life you were meant to live. So kind of a journey of stalking and tracking and courting that mm-hmm. and uh, building the wholeness necessary to uh, first discover that and then to live it, both of which have di- different challenges to them. First, getting, you know, to getting yourself to be able to have the vision and then how, do I, how am I actually going to take that in the world and make it happen? Um, and, uh, you know, I had been studying psychology and psychology really, really lacked a lot of what I found at Animus. I, I'm, I won't, I won't go on too long about this, but I'm not a big fan of psychology, even though I was a psychologist for 15 years. (laughs) Um, um, and I, it's not that it isn't well-intentioned and it's not that it doesn't help people because it does help people. It is well-intentioned and it, and there, it does help people and there are great therapists. And I did great work with people for 15 years and there was many, many transformations that happened. So it's not that. It's more the principle. Mm-hmm. It's more the underlying principles that, I, that I'm in disagreement with, which are um, that the self and the world are separate and that the self can be cured um, separate from the world and, uh, and that, the, that we attend to just the individual rather than the whole spectrum of the world and humans in it. <clears throat> and uh, eco-psychology does actually come back and make that connection and say that they are connected. So it's sort of bridged that gap. And um, Animus has a lot of those foundations of eco-psychology as part of it as well, that we are rooted in the world. Bill's wild mind model of wholeness is rooted in the natural world. In other words, we'll we'll not be whole without a deep relationship to the natural world. It's impossible because Mm -hmm. we're of the natural world. And how could we possibly be whole if we're not in relationship with the natural world? And uh, so the whole whole principle of focusing on wholeness rather than wounds um, and healing makes complete sense to me, too. Um, because you can you can be healing your wounds forever. I mean, it never ends. Mm. We could go into our history. We could spend you and I could probably spend several lifetimes reviewing our wounds. We wouldn't be done. And gosh knows, we've all tried over the years. And, and then, it, and then I've just been thinking that maybe that means that da da da. And you're just like, oh, overthink. Just get out into the woods. And it's, and it's not, you know, it's not that it's not important. That might be important for people to do sometime. Mm-hmm. And it, it was for me to spend some time doing that. Um, but, uh, you, you know, the real mission of animus is, isn't, you know, to be totally healed. It's to hold ourselves and make ourselves strong enough so that we can connect to our soul purpose and that so we can live our soul purpose and then serve and be connected to the world in that way, which mm-hmm. to me is a whole lot more interesting than an endless journey of circling our wound and trying to heal it. Mm. Uh, and it's also a lot more fruitful to the world yeah the world needs us i mean we're not going to be perfect perfectly whole or perfectly anything but we are our imperfect human selves and when we can be whole enough and strong enough to go forward and um live our purpose then i think that just changes everything and it's it's the whole point Mm. it is the whole point it's uh yeah (laughs) i love these podcast chats where i just you know, what it, we've been talking for, what, 15 minutes and I already want to go away and like journal for an hour. <laughs> You're doing a good job. Um, so I think um, from what we've talked about uh, before uh, recording today and from learning as much as I could before we chatted, uh, it seems there are so many different kind of uh, 
therapeutic guidance <laughs> guidances, uh, and they've all got some pretty exciting names: soul centric dream work, Hakomi somatic archaeology, uh, deep imagination, shadow work. But it, it, as you've said, it seems to fit into three things: dreams, listening to nature, and our bodies. Uh, so maybe we'll kind of do that. And I would love to start with dreams. It is such a curious subject for people. You know, what does it mean and, and how do I tune into them? How do I make the most of what my dreams might be telling me? Um, where do we start with dreams? Well, you know, um, first of all, your enthusiasm is a good place to start for it. Uh, in, in our culture, a lot of dreams are, because we focus our attention on our everyday lives, they seem more important than the dream world. Um, but actually in a lot of indigenous cultures, um, nature-based cultures, uh, dreams were more important than the waking life and dreams made decisions. Martine Practel talks about in Long Life Honey in the Heart that they would actually elect officials to office based on how many people in the village dream that person into office, if you can imagine. Wow. Dreams were given more weight than everyday life, I guess is what I'm trying to say. And so um, just the idea of being interested and enthusiastic about dreams. I get a lot of people in programs who say, gosh, I don't dream anymore. And so we have to kind of court the dream maker to give us dreams. Like, and it's almost like courting a friend who we haven't listened to in a long time. Like, oh, yeah, actually, you know, I really want to hear what you're going to say. And I really want to listen to you. And I have my journal handy and I'm going to wake up and write it down. And, um, you know, we do dreams in animus. Soul-centric dream work is different than other forms of dream work. The point isn't to take, isn't to mine the dream um, or to analyze the dream and then to try to, like, take the, the gold and bring it into our everyday life. Um, instead, it's actually to submit ourselves to the mystery of the dreams. The dream world is in some ways much more, the mystery of the dream world and its beings and characters is more important than the everyday life and that there's things that it can show us that are more important than the answers to the questions the mind has, which would be just sort of taking something so big and mysterious and then making it smaller. So a lot of the dream work that we do is, is how can I let the dream give me the experience it's trying to give me? How can I say yes to the dream? Which is, can be uncomfortable because oftentimes dreams, particularly nightmares are uncomfortable. It's like um, some dreams can range from mildly uncomfortable to intensely uncomfortable most of the time. Occasionally, it's something different, though, and we have a positive state in a dream. Um, and sometimes something that seemed uncomfortable at first when you work with it changes and suddenly it becomes very interesting. Mm. Uh, so when you say when you work with it, does that mean you take the dream into the conscious world once you've had it and you do something about it? Uh, yeah, you... Um, there's ways that you work with the dream. A lot of times um, it's, I ask a lot of questions about dreams and uh, try to understand what the person's psyche believes about the different imagery and beings and places in the dreams. And also we go, we, you could say we go back into the most important moments of the dream. Like I often guide people back into the most potent, intense moments in the dream to be there and to spend more time there. It's like um, in, in a dream where the ego is often going fast and it often has its own agenda. So when we go back into the dream, I always say I'm working for the dream maker, not for the human. And mm -hmm. I'm trying to invite the person back into the dream to uh, allow the experience that the dream's wanting them to have to happen more fully. Mm. Can I share a really vivid dream I had a few days ago as an example? Because it really freaked me out at the time. Okay. I <laughs> just think it might, might be useful to do live. Always happy to be a guinea pig on my own show. 
but I dreamt that I had cancer all through my legs mm-hmm. and the, and it was, it, I, there were no, uh, there's no recollection of any particularly uh, medical environment that I was in during this dream, but a man appeared out of nowhere um, and I wasn't even in a hospital gown or anything that would say that there was going to be a surgery. But I then ended up laying face down and the back of my legs being cut all the way down from the top to the bottom, like um, the line on a uh, vintage set of pantyhose. And, uh, and my legs opened up, like literally filleted open, and um, just a whole bunch of stuff taken out of the back of my legs, stitched back up, and I woke up and was great. It was, I was just so, there was this incredible feeling of gratitude. And, I, and then, then, then I woke up. That's all I remember. But it was an intense feeling, uh, both in and straight after waking up. And just one of those, ooh, okay, that was big. And, uh, and then I just had a very normal day getting my son packed up for lunch and school and all the usual things, getting some work done. But I, I am still mystified by that dream I had last week. Um, yeah. Ooh, great. Well, it sounds like a potent one. And the ones that continue to haunt you in those ways are usually some of the most important ones to work with. Mm. Some dreams take quite a while to work with you can work with dreams for a lifetime you can work with dreams for weeks months years certain dreams mm-hmm. as long as they feel alive um but uh, you know often it can take a long time to work with a dream but you know one question that came to my mind just when i heard that is how did it feel for you when the the backs of your legs were cut open like relief like- it was mm-hmm. like relief mm-hmm. yeah like a weight was being taken away mm-hmm. mm. So you could almost say there's some kind of surgery that was happening in your dream that yeah that, yeah that brought a positive state relief. You would yeah. think that being cut open wouldn't bring relief. Perhaps it might be it would feel uncomfortable, but surprisingly, it felt relieving. Yeah, it felt extremely relieving. Like it, it was actually a positive experience. Mm-hmm. And and so, what did it feel like before you were cut open with the cancer in your body? It felt like a big blockage. Mm-hmm. And I think it's interesting because I've been dealing with writer's block at the moment in a very profound way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I, I have a feeling that, that the two were somehow linked because ever since that dream, I've been having fantastic ideas, reaching out to people that I know I want to include in my next book, Um uh, I'm finding the research I want to find much more easily. I feel much freer. So it's almost like the for me the dream was this summation of how I had been feeling summarised in this thing that just had to stop and be gone uh, because I needed to be able to move forward and then then I could move forward. So those were some of the thoughts I'd had over the week. But uh, yeah, I just thought it'd be really interesting given we're talking about dreams because sometimes we can have these dreams and we think, oh my gosh, does that mean, uh, you know, I'm going to have can- is this premonition or, you know, all these sorts of things. But I think, no. The other thing interesting to ask is um, 
is why was it the back of your legs? You know, why that particular, you know, speaking of the body, which I know is something you wanted to check in about, but why that particular place on your body? You know, why mm-hmm. would the, the dream maker choose the back of your body to, and your legs? Do you know, I think that could be related to my frustration with not being fast enough on the tennis court to beat my coach. <laughs> I know that sounds ridiculous, but I'm always just like, come on, buddy, get across there. Why can't you get that shot? And it is a frustration in my life. So I don't know whether the, there was a, an intersection between writer's block and tennis, like, because it, it basically encapsulated two frustrations then, if that's the case. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we could say one invitation for you might be to um, actually go back into your imagination, into the dream and feel the frustration in tennis and feel the frustration in writing and feel that blockage in your legs like you felt in the dream and then allow the dream maker to cut the back of your legs open again and maybe even do it a few other times. And there may be more that wants to happen than has already happened. As you said, it seems like there's some healing that may have already happened just from you know, some mystery that may have already happened from just the dream happening at all, which I think does happen, but intentionally going back into the dream and let and submitting ourselves to it again and letting it happen again can be another way to keep working with it. Mm. And there's more that arises. And do you, and when you say keep working with it, is that uh, in a meditative state? Um, kind of, yeah. Yeah. It could be. It could be. Some people go out onto the land um, into nature and find a place that reminds them of the dream in nature and enact it out there. But it's entirely possible also to just do it in your, in your bedroom, um, to intentionally close your eyes, go back into the dream, into your imagination, let the whole dream happen again, slow it down. And then that particular point, that pivotal moment of the cutting open, like really, really, really slow that down and then wait in it to see what, if there's something that happens, something that arises, images, feelings, some surprise you didn't expect. And you could do it as a practice, you know, say every day for a couple of weeks, every morning and see what happens. It could be the same thing happens every day. It could be that different things happen every time. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm definitely going to do that because this is like in our normal culture, you kind of talk about the dream, dissect the dream. Maybe you look up, what does all my teeth falling out mean in, you know, a dream or, and you go like, check this out. I saw this on the internet, but then we kind of stop. That's where the dream stops. So this therapy, therapeutic kind of angle, I guess, is to have the dream be the starting point for a therapy that then well, continues. You could say it's, a, it's an invitation into a deeper mystery. Gotcha. Because hmm. uh, where a therapy often wants to take things and sum them up and like say, okay, good, got yes. this. Yes, let's put it in a box. Yeah. And then I never have to think about it again. <laughs> yeah. It's not to say that some of the more shallow layers of dream work aren't accurate. They mm. might be, but I find that um, dreams have multiple layers of meaning, um, a multiplicity of meaning. And so the more you keep going in, you can get, you can get, it's not that the other layers might not be true, but there's more, there's more to come. Mm. Like you're keeping in it like tea, you know, like the more you steep it, the more will happen. Yeah. Do you remember your first, uh, experience going deeper into your, a dream of yours? Totally. Completely. Can you share it? Oh yeah. It's very memorable. I was 29. It was my first animus program. Um, it was the first full day. I'd never done dream work really before. Um, and they announced it, they taught about it. It was, there was like 20 something people there and 
Bill Plotkin was the leader and he was saying, you know, who wants to do a dream? And he was trying to give all these caveats, like, you know, it can be really vulnerable and da, 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 da. And I was like bouncing in my seat. Like I could hardly contain myself. I wanted to share so badly. And soon everybody in the group was like pointing to me and saying, I think, I think she wants to go. And, and so um, I shared a dream and there was, it was a long dream with many different pieces in it about me being at work. Um, with the young girls that I worked with in adolescent uh, therapy, wilderness therapy. Um, but there was w- this one short snippet of a moment in, in, the, in passing in the dream where I'm walking by a trash can and there's a dark-skinned girl in the trash can with trash up to her chin. And I walk by and I throw up into the trash can and then I go on you know, with the dream. And it was the teensiest moment in the dream. It's like watching a movie and you know, like the the bigger part of the play is, is all this other stuff happening, but this is just this almost like moment that you could easily, if you blinked, you would like miss that moment. And so um, Bill chose to like to focus in on that moment and let, like we worked with that moment and I got to encounter that young girl of myself and meet her and get to know how she felt and step into like her shoes, what it would feel like to be her. And, and then I wandered out on the land with a, um, with her. And I, you know, did it enacted a ceremony to take her out of the trash can and to hear, try to understand more about why I had put her in the trash can and, and who she was and the gifts that she brought to my life. And so you could say it completely changed my life. Just that one dream, even though I've worked multiple dreams, because to just take that, to just invite back that one part of myself into my life, completely rearrange the shape my life would take forever forward. Wow. Isn't that fascinating? The, it, it just highlights instantly how much untapped potential there is in our life taking more um, a, a truer course if we do dream work. Mm-hmm, totally. Do you feel yep. that to be true? Yep. And it's, it's kind of like what you said, you know, shadow is in here. There's a lot of ourselves which live in the shadow. Mm-hmm. Because our culture in growing up has told us to take all these beautiful, magnificent parts of ourselves and literally throw them in the trash or in the long black bag behind us. Like they're not welcome in our family. They're not welcome in civilization. Of course, you know, those places aren't healthy, but, you know, we, so we, we become these emaciated skeletons of beings to, to function and survive and to belong into this, into this world and these groups. And meanwhile, all of our gifts live in the black bag. And when we reclaim the gifts, it's not only does it, reinvigorate our own life with aliveness and authenticity but it gives us our true gifts which are needed in the world because mm. we don't really want to just be a, an emaciated skeleton fitting into a sick world we want to be able to be a resource person that has things to bring to change the world mm. and and feel uh, and 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 feel honest about the way we're showing up i think that's a huge thing i think there's always a niggle when you're not feeling honest about the way you're showing up and it's an incongruence within oneself. Um, whether you choose to listen to that or not is of course a whole other story, but it will come out somehow, whether it's, uh, you know, negative snapping at people, whether it's, um, you know, it can manifest so many different ways, but an example for me this year is my son is 10 and, Uh, He loves to sing. This kid never stops singing when he's at home. He sings on the toilet. He sings in the shower. He sings while he's unpacking his school bag. He sings while he's doing the dishwasher. Sing, 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 sing. And he had always been in the choir at school. But this year, 
all his male friends stopped one after one, just stopped going to choir. And he came home to me one day and he said, mom, I can't be in the choir anymore. And I said, why? You love singing. He's like, well, none of my friends are in there anymore. And it's kind of now weird that I am for them. And I was like, oh, and we're, we're moving schools next year to a very musical, creative school. Uh, and I knew that was coming. And I thought, you know what, sweetheart, if that's how you're feeling about your current situation, don't go to choir. It's fine. You sing literally every other second of the day. Let it be in your heart. Love singing. And next year you'll be able to do that with all of your friends loving singing too. And, uh, and, so, and we were both cool with that. And I think that I, I bring up that example because he you know, maybe there are times in our lives where we can't manifest our true selves in one situation, but we need to support ourselves by knowing that we can in other facets of our life just for that little while where things are different. Does does that make sense? It just feels like a good example for what you're talking about with the shadows. Yeah. I mean, I think we have to honor the the no's in our lives. Mm. Um, and sometimes if it, if, if we are being inauthentic in a moment, which we all are, um, that it's the heartbreak of that that, mm-hmm. that drives us to be different in the next moment. Mm, yeah. And I think as parents, to see our kids having to make those choices and support them to f- be their full selves as much as possible in other areas of their life while they're going through these these times where you do conform and you know, you, you got to have friends at school. Uh, of, after school, you tend to choose more and be more intentional about the friendships. But, you know, you, at school, that's not always the case. Mm, so interesting. So in the shadows, in our adulthood, sitting there in a work cubicle or running a fancy sales pitch as an executive uh, and going home, and being relieved to not be in whatever day environment you were in anymore. It feels like a lot of people live in that life um, where there is a sense of relief as soon as you're on your own clock instead of someone else's. How do we uh, reconcile that? How do we find um, more congruence in our day without completely blowing everything up <laughs> like do we do we literally all need to go run out into the wild and and just forget everything or I, i'm curious because that plan yeah <laughs> um, and, and this is where um sometimes animus guides secretly or, or not so secretly we call ourselves professional troublemakers mm. um because the the fine print is in our programs we're really not trying to help people become happier and more well-adjusted to our modern civilization. Mm. Because, you know, we recognize that it's not well, you mm. know, it's a sick culture. It's, it's destroying everything. It's destroying the earth. It's destroying other people. It's, it's not going to last anyway. Um, so um, what, what we see is that in these times where, you know, civilization is going to be falling, um, or maybe even intentionally bringing it down, you know, it's like, it's not, it's not a lasting way. It's not a healthy way. Um, and so it's like uh, professional trouble, troublemakers is like, if you're, if you're coming to kind of get a couple pieces so you can go fit back into that, it's probably not going to happen. 
Mm. Instead, the hope is that you're going to get more resource as a person and more connected to your soul mission to feel how, how you may, might be able to help in these times to step, to step forward and lead and um, help, help us do things, you know, help something different happen, help the, the creative transition of our times. Mm. Have you ever had, uh, can you share an anonymous uh, example of someone quite powerful by conventional standards, you know, maybe a C-suite executive or a politician who has come on one of your experiences and, and, and vastly changed their outlook on how the future needs to be? Oh yeah, I would say so. I mean, obviously, I can't I can't share any. Names. Of course not. Yeah. But yeah, there's been all range of kinds of people. I mean, we have people. You know, we have young college students to you know CEOs of companies of major organizations. You know, who come, and uh, and and some and they have different levels when they come. Some people already know that there's a change afoot. They know it's often some sense that you know what I'm doing is just not working. I don't mm. really know what to do from here. But I do know that I can't keep doing the same thing because it's really just not working. Most people who come have, they don't just come because everything's going fine and they think that, you know, it's all fine. It's good. If it's all fine and good, they're generally not, not coming to Not attracted to the work. Yeah. Yeah. They're, they're, they're really already on some level ready for something to happen. They're ready to let go. They're ready to step into something new and they just need a bit more direction and help about how to do it. And so, Mm. Um, I mean, the biggest part of our journey is really personal dismemberment. Um, the soul initiation journey involves personal dismemberment of everything that you thought you were um, and what you thought your life to be so that you can listen to mystery um, and nature to hear your true purpose, mm-hmm. which isn't for the faint of heart. And no. it's not necessarily what everybody does on their very first program. Sometimes in their first program, they're just getting resource to be able to do that. We never really push people into that. I mean, it would be unprofessional and unhealthy to do that because you have to be ready and you have to want that. Mm. Um, it's more that we give people the tools and the resources um, to help themselves be stronger and more whole. And, and the invitation is there when they're ready to put things on the altar and step into that conversation. You know, it's available. Yeah. I was going to say, otherwise you could end up feeling more broken at the end than whole. And that would be the opposite of your intention. Yeah. I mean, you can feel broken. I mean, we all, we all probably feel broken, but um, we want, what we want is that um, people have the wholeness to hold themselves in it mm. so that they can go through the process, which is a little bit like a metamorphosis of a, of a caterpillar in a cocoon. You know, they need to be able to have that structure in themselves of the, the cocoon that can hold such a thing like that happening. Mm. And so with nature and the body, um, when you take people out into the wild, uh, our bodies, I mean, you know, we can often feel so tense that we don't even realise we're tense. We can feel so rigid that we don't even realise we're rigid because it just becomes the normal. Is nature a vehicle for us to do some unravelling and reconnect to our bodies as well rather than just connect to nature? Oh yeah, I would definitely say that's the case. I mean, I also have my own organization that I call Wild Yoga. Um, mm. I, I totally believe in practices like yoga and other mindfulness practices because we all have trauma and um, partly we need to be able to unwind our trauma and strengthen ourselves. And just being in nature is is what I would call healing, you know, and 
So like I, when I used to work wilderness therapy, people weren't going to nature to do what animus's work is to go through a soul initiation journey. They were just going for healing. Mm -hmm. So nature totally provides just healing. And sometimes we get people on programs and that's just where they are in their life. They just need some healing. And that's, that's what, that's the most important thing that could happen for them. And so that's what happens. I mean, Mm -hmm. In, in a way, every program is individualized for every person, no matter what the title of the program is. Because the program is, what is your body? And what is your dreams? And what are your conversations with nature? And what's where you are in your life? What's it telling you that's the next step for you, that you most need to get stronger, you know, you know in, in your place in the journey? Mm. And how do we start talking to nature? Like, where does one even begin? Is it... Uh, it, like I'm thinking busy daily modern life, not quite ready to think about a 10 day retreat uh, experience yet, but just wanting to start bringing some of the the concepts of that into our daily lives uh, and, and feeling a bit useless. Like do I just go sit in a park? You know, I'm just trying to think of all, our whole audience and all the different countries that everybody lives in. Um, you know, some on farms, some in cities and and wanting to sort of help them get started with this uh, so that we can feel a bit more connected. Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of it is opening our sensory bodies, mm-hmm. being able to experience the natural world as if it is sentient. And that might involve using mm-hmm. your imagination like you were five. You know, when you were five, if you were five, in most cases, if you were a healthy five-year-old and you were playing a game, to imagine that everything is alive and wild and sentient, a being with a soul, just like you. Um, as a five-year-old, you would say, great, let's play that, you know, and mm. you, would, you would go forth and play. And now as an adult, a lot of times we have skeptics like, oh, well, I don't think it's very important to be in my imagination. And, you know, I, what's the point of that? Um, in the work that we do, imagination is an extremely important window of knowing. We, we believe that the culture's view that imagination is only kid stuff is totally inaccurate, um, completely. You know, in our culture, it's like thinking is the only thing that matters. But actually sensing our physical feelings, emotions, and our imagination are, are key elements of experiencing our world. And so if you can go out into a natural world and ex- in, in, inter- interface with everything as if it is alive and sentient, how would you interact with it? What would you say? How would you be? You know, talk out loud. Let yourself be in that imaginative conversation. Play. That's a great way to start. Mm. Great. Seems doable. Can do that in your garden. Can do that down at the beach. Um, And the other thing I wanted to ask you about was body image and body self-love. You know, we are so trained to constantly be Uh, on the lookout for the next part of our body that needs work, needs help. You know, one of my least favourite things that I saw last year was a boom gate at a shopping centre that I drove into. Uh, And I really do try to avoid shopping centres, but sometimes you just got to go and buy the pair of shoes when they're on sale for your kid. And and there was a boom gate and it was a um, lip plumping kind of special offer. I wish you could see Rebecca's face when uh, when I just said that. <laughs> she, <laughs> um, but it literally said lovable lips for two ninety nine, and I just I thought, wow, we have peaked. 
this is really where we've arrived, where we can't even just believe that as a normal person, we might actually be lovable without spending $299 on lips that are someone else's version of perfection. Uh, like it is dire how, um, how, how much we are made to believe that our bodies have something wrong with them at all times. Uh, and it's not just women, it's men as well. I've spoken to men and they are as self-conscious. It's just not particularly male to talk about. So they tend to hide it. How on earth do we fix that? Like what, what work do we need to do to start loving ourselves more and having gratitude for ourselves and the magnificence of our bodies in all the shapes and sizes and presentations? Yeah, you know, I, there's a lot, there's so much to that. Mm. Uh, um, I mean, I'd say, I'd say some of it is uh, turn off mainstream media. Yeah. Don't stop looking at the magazines because our whole culture is promoting those kinds of images as being beautiful. Um, to me, the natural world is a place, I feel very loved in the natural world and I always have even as a kid climbing trees. I felt more love there almost than anywhere. I mean, like if I wanted to feel love, go, go hold a tree, go climb a tree, um, go be held by a tree. It's not looking at you in, in the way, in the eyes of this culture. So, I mean, I think that it, there's a capacity which we do need to develop for self-love. And I mean, I spent a long time in my own life apprenticing the trees for about three or four years um, to, to love myself because I didn't. And um, I, the trees, and I would pray to the trees to help me to love myself. I would say, I, I, I would go there when I was having troubles and I would say, I can't love, I'm having trouble loving myself right now. Can you help me? Like, and it usually would be if some circumstance was particularly challenging. Um, and, and now, you know, it's, I did it so long. It's kind of, I mean, I still run into challenges, but I can feel the trees in my imagination and they're, they're there. Um, they're almost there. I don't even always have to go out there and ask like that anymore. So they're just like right there. They're already in me, mm-hmm. but, we, but you know, it's, it's definitely an important thing to cultivate people all the time in this culture say, love yourself. Great idea. How do I do that? <laughs> Mm. And it's not easy. Like you can't, you can't wave a magic wand. You can't pump something in your lips and then suddenly you love yourself. I mean, it takes, it takes time and cultivation. It takes recognizing like, I'm not loving myself right now. Like I need some help. Um, so, and I ultimately, I mean, I'm just going to say, I think a lot of uh, things come down to, this is the whole DSM, you know, in psychology, which say, which, which would call it like body, body dysphoria and in all the other depressions, anxieties, and dysphorias that, that are in the DSM, you know, are, are they accurately things that people can diagnose? You know, I'd, I'd call them not diagnoses, but symptoms of a bigger problem. And I actually, um, you know, if I was to write my own DSM, not that I really want to, but um, I love like Chellis Glendening's book, My Name is Chellis and I'm in Recovery from Western Civilization. Mm-hmm. And she has a quote in there that says, that calls, uh, that she, she posits that our original trauma is the horror of the domination paradigm in Western civilization that has systematically removed our lives from participation in the natural world, a psychic displacement or homelessness. So the, the practices that I'm telling you to return to the natural world and apprentice to love are really, they really all have to do with our original trauma of being removed from nature in the first place as our homeland, mm. where I, when, if we were just, if we grew up in it and we were living in it, then we, there wouldn't be that feeling. 
Mm, so interesting. Uh, quite topical for us in Australia is that we have 2 million hectares of our country burning right now as we have this conversation and the pain we are feeling. You can feel people's pain. I am here in an apartment block and albeit I choose to live very close to the water so I am always able to see and be with nature um, either visually or within 100 metres and um, and yet so far removed from the wilderness of our country, I completely admit that I am as someone who lives in Sydney, yet so connected that it is painful to experience what we're experiencing right now. And you can see everyone in the city is feeling it. Um, and, uh, and, of course, everyone who's right there in the um, horrific... Uh, fires that are happening are experiencing it. Is that pain a reminder of how important nature is to us? Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I, that pain is, is a reminder that we're not separate from nature. No. And that's just one of the things our whole world believes in this separation that I as an individual can, can lead a good life and make money and get a nice home or achieve something or self-actualize. And and everything else be damned. But if I do this for me, then it's gonna, I'm going to feel good. Mm. And that's just, it's a, it's a lie. Mm. Um, I believe that inextricably our, our cells feel everything that's happening to everything else. We're all connected. And mm. so it can't be that something else suffers like the natural world and, and we're fine. We're not fine. I mean, we're our, really every, cell in, our, every cell in our body knows that, that loss and that pain is part of us. Mm. And so how do we, how do you recommend we work with that as a country? What, what can, what do you think each of us can do? Because we're very frustrated at the moment when we see, uh, and, and I'm not making this as a political statement, but it is just a fact that when one sees the leader of that country, uh, then, you know, tweeting about the cricket or, you know, passing other bills in parliament that have absolutely nothing to do with the urgency of a country burning, uh, the the disconnect that we then see on our television screens, when really I fantasize about this leader who is, you know, leading us from the front and saying, "Guys, we need to band together. This is what we need to do. We can't ignore this uh, because we're all doing it on the ground." But it feels like you know, grassroots is incredible and amazing and comforting, really. Um, especially when the top isn't doing what we feel would be appropriate in a situation like this. But how do we feel, feel that what we're doing really helps? Uh, because I think that it's something I had absolutely not planned to talk about, but it just seems so topical right now for us as a country, so many of us feeling in equal parts frustration at the lack of support above um, and also sadness at the continued uh, sense that this really isn't the major thing that we should all be worrying about as a country right now. When you say this isn't a major thing, you mean this is a major thing we should be worrying about right now? Yeah. Is, yeah. Yeah. It, it, yeah. Is, is, yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, absolutely. It's pretty much what's on my mind almost all the time. Mm. And I've been doing this work with Animus for 14 years as a, as a guide and, and longer as a participant. And uh, I believe a lot of this work that we're doing is very helpful, connecting to the dream time and nature, 
and you know they're they're wiser than us. That's the way I see it. They know more than we do. Um, so there's there's possibilities that our minds can't think of if we ascend, you know, to the depths of these levels that are that are pre our our you know colonized mind that that is raised here that thinks that the only thing that can happen is in the means of what's happened here. If we can really relearn to listen deeply to dreams and nature, I believe there are far other possibilities than um, than presently exist. And as well, I've recently lined up with some um, activist and revolutionary movements, and I am a supporter of Joanna Macy, who believes in the, um, uh, like, um, part of what we're doing is called holding actions, and part of what we're doing is um, shifting consciousness, that's the work that Animus is doing, and part of it is, um, you know, sustainable practices that work, and that, that hitting things from all those three sides is what's needed. And as far as the um, holding actions, you know, I, part of my involvement, I'm doing some programs with uh, some environmental organizations, including one called Deep Green Resistance is going to do an animus program. And um, one of the reasons I wanted to work with them is, is uh, there's, a, there's a big revolutionary movement about even bringing down civilization, you know, having a revolution, an ecological revolution, that civilization is harming our home. It's, it's, not, it's not like we can have both. We can't have civilization and our earth home. So if we have to choose between civilization and our earth home, then the earth home is the one that gives us our fresh water. It's the one that gives us our food. It's the one that gives us our air. It's the one that gives us life. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's our mother. And so the choice is not hard to make. We choose earth. And so what do we have to do as a people to not just, you know, when you speak of being authentic and conforming, not necessarily conforming, but being authentic and speaking up and speaking out and acting out, you know, on behalf of what we love. So I'm, I'm a, I'm really a supporter of that as well. Mm. And, you know, how do you reconcile the, I'd be curious to know if you ever feel frustration or pain when uh, you are in these incredible, immersive, positive, healing, whole-making environments for so much of your time and yet you then look out at the world and the state of play, um, the types of leaders we have around the world and what they're choosing to make priorities. Do you ever feel like what you're doing isn't enough? And oh. if so, how do you make peace and continue? Good point. Yeah. I mean, I, all the time, mm. you know, what, what would be enough? It's, it's almost mm. like Bill, Bill calls it impossible dreams, impossible dreaming, you know, the value of impossible dreaming. What's, what's the value of going forth and doing anything, you know, writing my book or guiding my programs or speaking out, you know, you know, each, even trying for revolution. If it seems like the odds seem like, what are the odds that I could, that I could actually make that happen? Um, so it's, it's hard sometimes to keep going on. And, you know, even though it can seem like what's really going to make a difference and, um, and my heart is broken, but I do believe that it's not always about the end result of, of what happens. It's about living what I'm here to, what my part is and what I'm here to live. And to me, that's listening to nature and listening to my muse um, about what I can be doing right now and what I can be being right now um, that's going to do my part in it. And, you know, Bill talks a lot about not necessarily saving the world, but belonging to the world more fully. As if, you know, it's not like I can, it's not like I'm a, this hero character that's going to go out and save the day, but I can belong to the world more fully by feeling my belonging to earth 
and by listening to what my part in what my note is to play in the song of it and by doing that and and growing myself stronger because it does it it does ask me to grow ever stronger and that makes it sort of exciting and sort of edgy all the time um it's very enlivening but it's uh and and i don't know i don't know what the result is going to be but it seems like the most important conversation to be in the middle of right now mm. and, and what you're, what you're describing what you're describing is that sense of moving back into your personal sense of empowerment rather than mm. your frustration for what you haven't managed to affect changing, you know, because personal empowerment is always going to feel like, well, there is always something I can do if I operate from that place. Yep. Whereas if I'm looking at all the things that aren't done yet, I'll always feel like it'll never get to be all done. Yeah, it's pretty easy to look at the situation and feel hopeless. Mm, yeah. <laughs> that would not be hard at all, or mm. it, or to just give up. You know, I think a lot of times in our culture, we move we, the culture moves from a mindset of there's no problem to oh yeah, now there's a big problem, but I can't do anything about it. Mm. <laughs> what would it be like to not try to judge, you know, that, but to just um, step forward and um, do do what my part is? Almost, it's like acting out of love. I'm I'm so in love with the natural world, just to tell you the absolute truth it's mm. given me so much i mean i would not be me if it wasn't for the natural world it birthed me it raised me and and uh i've seen that it do the same for so many people over the last couple decades and so to not fight for it you know not to not fight for our world and for it for it would just be like it wouldn't be authentic it wouldn't be possible to not not try mm. not about the end result Absolutely. Amazing. Um, I feel like I could talk to you for another hour, but I'm conscious of your time. <laughs> um, and I would love to ask you about uh, the, um, the experiences you take people on, and especially because there's one coming to Australia in 2020 in just a couple of months' time, in March, I think it is, uh, and uh, also in Utah for our American listeners who are curious about what Rebecca and I have been talking about today. Um, there's a couple of really exciting group trips. So can you talk to us just a little bit about what people can come to expect spending 10 days with you in the wild? Yeah. Um, you, I mean, I know we've obviously talked about quite a few of the things that would be um, right. coming up, but yeah. Right. I think we have a, um, for the 10 day trip, I'm on the Franklin river. Um, mm -hmm. and then there's a two, five day trips, one or five day experiences just South of Sydney, three hours South of Sydney. And that's, um, Soulcraft intensive and council and mirroring. So each program has its own, uh, own experience that it does. Uh, so I don't know if, do you want to hear about anything in particular or, um, all of the above or I'm all of the above. Yeah. Well, I can sum it up. <laughs> How could I possibly sum that up? Well, for you? well, okay. So what would five days look like? Is 10 days just a more in-depth version of five days or have you picked specific themes that um, are able well, to be completed in a five day rather? You know what I mean? Yeah. They're, they're hmm. pretty different experiences. Like the experience on the Tasmanian river, we're actually going down a river. You know, I'm a river guide as well. I love, I'm totally in love with rivers in particular they have taught me so much about being strong and, you know, surrendering and fighting both the value of going with the flow and the value of, you know, wrestling your way to stay alive. Mm. Um, and uh, so the, a lot of that experience is very physical. It's a class four river and it's a high adventure trip. 
and but we're in one of the most remote remote places in the world that I'm ever in. There's no airplanes for ten days that fly overhead. It's the only wow. time a year ten days I don't see any airplanes at all. And um, you know we're well off any trails and roads, and we're pretty much just the river taking us through where we need to go. So you really feel very, very out there. And it's very physical. So a lot of what's happening is we're together on the river and we're, we're on this adventure together. And so we're in conversation with what's happening with the river and in ourselves every moment. And I also do a lot of similar practices in other programs. We do a yoga practice. We do conversations with the natural world. We do ceremony with the river. We do dream work. Um, and we do, you know, people just having a deep conversation with their souls, with their dreams, with their depths, strengthening their wholeness as while we're in the flow of just having a very physical adventure experience on the river and being in conversation with the Franklin River, which is a fab, fascinating place. And I know some of the history of Franklin River being saved, um, you know, by people, the 2000 protesters that, that you, know, um, you know, helped rally. So it's fabulous. And it's just, it's an amazing place. Um, and then the two five-day programs um, are, are like standard programs at Animus that we do here in the United States. Um, regularly. The Soulcraft Intensive can be a great one to begin with because um, it's kind of like a collection of all of the practices and we're not on a you know on a high adventure river trip then so we're just like we're in a wild place but we're just diving into all of the ceremonies and all the practices full-time like we're in group and you're going out on the land and you're having dreams and we're doing dream work and so we're, we're just always like full-on in all the practices the whole time for five days. That's why they call they call everything an intensive. Mm. Intensive and, and um, soulcraft intensive, so it's it's only five days, but a whole lot happens in that five days. Wow, amazing! They certainly sound like um, a, a gift to to people who choose to accept those gifts. And I hope a few peeps from our low tox community go, so you can hear all about it. I will, unfortunately, when you're here, be in the middle of wrapping up um, two books that I'm writing at the moment, so I can't this time, but. I am so excited by the work you do and I think it's so important for um, the world. So thank you. And, uh, and, I think, and I think Animus is hoping to come a couple times a year ongoing. So oh, amazing. Hopefully, hopefully you can just stay tuned with the other things ahead. I shall. And, uh, and my husband will be thrilled because I am, am not a particularly keen camper. Um, but I honestly believe that that is because I have not been guided to seeing the power of uh, being in wild spaces. Um, and he will laugh when he listens back to this show. <laughs> He's like, I want to guide you into the wild space. Like, I want to go with Rebecca. <laughs> because it's the spiritual uh, aspects that I'm most excited about. And I know because I get a taste of that when I'm in the ocean. That is my wild place that I feel completely connected to and whole. Um, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. I love the ocean too. And, um, the intent, the five day intensives are at a retreat center so people can camp or sleep in a bed. So just so you know, just so you, <laughs> I you love know, it. she's like, I think I've got one for you. Although I personally am in completely in love with camping. So of course, yeah. That you might love it. Sometimes it's just knowing, um, how to do it. That makes it comfortable for yourself. Yeah, that's right. And I think, there have, to, there have to be ways that everybody can feel like they can be a part of it, especially when you're just starting out, right? So you've definitely sold me. I'm going to be coming at some point in the next, in the next year uh, somewhere in the world. And, uh, and I want to thank you for your time sharing 
uh, your work because it's um, it's very valuable work. I really enjoyed talking about it with you. And I can't wait to connect everybody to your website. Tell us about the book. You're just about to publish a book, right? Yeah, it's called Playing and Praying, mm-hmm. Soul Stories for Personal and Planetary Transformation. So and just a, a, just a really light topic then, just something, yeah. a quick read. Yeah. <laughs> It's actually kind of for for this work. It's lighter than most books because twelve stories. Yeah. So it's actually oh. uh, stories of their personal journeys of transformation, and also how the journeys of personal transformation. The last four stories in particular, this each story kind of transformation kind of builds on on itself. And so the last four stories of the twelve in particular, people are very much wrestling with the problems of our planet and how to bring their gifts to that. Mm. Amazing. We shall look out for it. Good luck wrapping it up and bringing it out into the world. And thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Good luck with your writing projects as well. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoy having these conversations and bringing them to you. Now, where can you find me and Lotox Life from here on in? Well, you've obviously got lotoxlife.com and there we have everything beautifully organized into food, home, body and mind topics as well as kids and a whole bunch of free downloadables and resources to help you, inspire you to take community action Uh, and uh, there's amazing A to Z recipes there if you're ever getting a little bit uh, stale in the kitchen and a whole bunch of articles that I've written over the past nine years of writing a blog. You can also find me on Instagram at Lotox Life and also on Facebook by a page the same name. I make everything super easy, Lotox Life, so you can find it really, really simply. Thank you so much to everybody who leaves a five-star review over on Stitcher or iTunes or wherever it is that you tune into the show. And also to let you know that you can join us on Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Lotox Life and come join the private Lotox Life Club. In there, over time, more and more cool stuff is about to be added and I can't wait to see where that community takes us. It's a place where we can continue the conversations, chat about the weekly show, you're going to get bonus uh, Q&A and all sorts of things over time. I explain everything over on Patreon, so I encourage you to check that out. And in the meantime, I'll see you next week. Today